about 3,000 odd years ago, uh, Egypt was this massive empire and it had various immig immigrant populations and one of them were the Israelites and the Israelites they particularly, hopefully we know, treated really badly. Eventually one of these Israelites rose to prominence. They were chosen by God to bear witness to an incredible rescue. It would prove a really seismic salvation and this salvation wouldn't just be incredible for the Jews but it would point forward to God's ultimate plan for salvation for everyone for the redemption of humanity for everyone that confesses the name of Jesus and uh, so this is, is this wonderful uh, uh, shadowing of what would come so all the time we read of Israel's deliverance every moment every word every passage um, it, um, it hopefully provokes us to consider our own salvation. These stories are not just history stories. These things are not supposed to be relegated. This is just what happened in the past. And so I invite you to grab your Bible. Now in chapter 5 of Exodus, we had Pharaoh insolently ask Moses, who is this Lord, this God that you worship, that I would have to change my plans for him? And this, my friends, now we get to God's main reply. Uh, Exodus chapter 7. Um, if you're looking for Exodus in the New Testament, you won't find it. At least I haven't found it there. So Exodus chapter 7. Um, So it says this in Exodus chapter 7, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. Everyone say unyielding. unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. There's some wonderful theological conjecture as to what was Pharaoh doing at the river. Was he going for a toilet break? Was he going for a bath? Uh, was he going to go to the yachting club? No one knows. Um, so he went out to the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go. Everyone say, let my people go. Excellent. So that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. And this is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile. Can you hear the grandeur in this moment? Um, you can imagine a breeze uh, uh, slowly taking up Moses' hair and all eyes listening. Uh, this is what the Lord says. This is how you know that I am the Lord. When, you are, when Pharaoh asks the question, this is the reply. I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The, the, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to what? Blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. blood. 
the fish in the Nile died and the river smelled like that river that goes through Buber sometimes. No. Then the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. What was everywhere in Egypt? Excellent. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things. What? They did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace. Uh, the uh, Hebrew says he turned his back on them. Uh, and he did not take this even to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get the drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Um, before we look at the supernatural work uh, in North Africa, I want to flesh out the account. I want to make it uh, uh, even more real than perhaps the, uh, the, the text says immediately. Uh, I had the privilege of reading geography at university. I didn't do very well, so I try not to mention it uh, too much, uh, but it was really good. And um, one of the things we got to look at was rivers. Now, you may wonder how interesting can a river be? Well, it can actually be really interesting. This is like the dumbed down version that I found on the Charles website uh, uh, just to uh, uh, speak to you. Um, and the, uh, uh, just the, the geography of rivers uh, is really helpful here. And I wanted to do this moment. Um, when I was at, uh, at university, they would say, turn in your Briggs and Smithson to page 20, which was uh, one of our textbooks there. So if you've got a Briggs and Smithson, open it up at page 362, for that's the lesson we're going to look at this morning. So it says this. The relationship between streams and man is intimate. Over the centuries, streams have exerted a fundamental influence upon man's economies and politics. Who knew rivers touched politics? They have helped to fashion the distribution of his settlement. They have acted as barriers to cultural, cultural diffusion and as routeways for his trade and movement. Rivers have helped and hindered. Uh, the spread of humanity. They have been both a focus of civilization and a threat to it. That's what we find here. In return, man has modified the streams and sometimes deliberately, often accidentally. We have already discussed, if you're familiar with Briggs and Smithson, in chapter 14, the intimate relationship between man and streams, but we're not going to go and revisit that. Um, as we saw then, man derives water from streams and also uses them, and I love the euphemism here, uh, we also use them as a method of removing and diluting his waste. So we like to urinate and poo in streams and it carries it away from us so we don't have to worry about it. Um, but the landscapes of fluvial action, that's like all the sediment in rivers, are also important, as are the geomorphological, how good's that word on a Sunday morning? If you're phased out already in your mind, you don't know what's going on, well, that has pushed you off the edge. And that's like the surface features of the planet that, that uh, rivers create. Um, and stream channels change like the face of the earth. It was to the extensive flat and fertile floodplains of major rivers that prehistoric man was attracted. And it was here that the great civilizations of the world developed. The Babylonians and the Sumerians and the Tigris and the Euphrates, 
the Egyptians on the Nile. Everyone say Egyptians. Egyptians. Everyone say Nile. Nile. And let me say, you all need to say Delta. Delta. So Egyptians. Egyptians. Nile. Nile. Delta. Delta. All very important in this. Uh, and the Chinese dynasties on the Yellow River. It was not just the presence of water that drew these people and permitted them to establish sophisticated settlements. It was the agricultural potential of the land, a potential maintained by silts with the rivers deposited on the floodplain each time they came. So when the rivers come, they hold a load of sediment in it, all the stuff that they've taken from the sides of the rivers and other stuff that's flown in. And so right down here, you have what's called uh, uh, floodplains and uh, silt. And what silt is, it's incredibly fertile. It has quartz in it, which helps the soil structure, and it also has loads of nutrients. So if you're gonna be planting stuff, don't bother going up to the source. Come down to the Nile Delta and you will have fertile ground to grow your crops. Even today, a large proportion of the world's population is directly dependent on this process for their livelihoods. Well done, you've just listened to uh, um, degree level uh, geography. Um, rivers have always been an excellent resource for humanity. They've always been important to us. Uh, anyone know the most famous river in England? Thames. And what's around the Thames? London. The civilizations again and again are found round rivers because rivers are really important uh, uh, mechanisms for all sorts of dynamics in human society. And the Nile is exactly the same. In fact, it's more important because it is bigger. And I think, God willing, we got this. This is a uh, recent NASA photo of the Nile. Can you see how civilization clings to the Nile all the way up and then, can you see this bit? Can anyone remember the term for this bit of the Nile? The Delta. Can you see how humanity has flourished on the Delta? This is all farmland, this is all fantastic for growing crops, and then civilization has just uh, uh, doubled down on that area. Water through the river brings hydration, you can drink it normally, I wouldn't necessarily recommend you drink the Bubish water uh, and probably, maybe, maybe not even the Thames, uh, but it often, uh, you can drink it, uh, it takes sewage away, um, it sets down nutrients so farmers can farm near uh, uh, where the rivers go um, and it provides food. Um, I really wanted to uh, bring you pictures of Nile, um, Nile, not, Nile perch, which are massive ginormous fish and fishermen from all around the world go to the Nile to catch these ginormous fish that they can barely lift up and you have the gurning faces of the, uh, of the victorious fishermen. And so the, the Nile is the root cause of the Egyptian empire, it's what made it so successful initially. And so, with the Nile being so important, it is not surprising that it becomes a really critical feature of uh, Egyptian spirituality and religiosity. Um, so this is happy, what 
a nice sounding God. Um, so this is Happy, an Egyptian god. Um, he's in charge of the Nile, uh, one of the, the, the big gods, and it's one of the ones that the farmers would have been particularly uh, um, mindful of because there would be like this regular annual flooding which would bring all the silt and all the nutrients and mean the crops could uh, uh, grow. And uh, so that's Happy. Um, and uh, uh, they prayed to uh, him a lot. It is little wonder that this is God's first mighty work in Egypt. The snakes and the monsters that we looked at were kind of a sign of what was to come. Later on in the text, it says that the signs done were not just signs for Israel, weren't just signs for Egypt, but they were signs against the Egyptian gods. And this is a sign against the impotent God of Happy, who could do nothing against Yahweh's great power. Um, so it's little wonder that this is the first major miracle of Yahweh uh, in, the, uh, in Egypt. This life-giving water that does so much for humanity suddenly is reversed. Suddenly it brings death. Suddenly it stinks of death as the fish rise to the surface, suffocated uh, uh, by the blood. And it is everywhere. And so if you can imagine a society utterly dependent on this river, suddenly thirst comes. Suddenly hunger comes. Those Nile perch are dead and you cannot eat them. Suddenly sanitation is a problem. Don't we moan when the bins don't get collected, when there's something going on? Imagine if the whole sanitation process just ground to a halt because the river was turned to blood. These are the seismic implications of this work of wonder. It obviously speaks to us of God's sovereignty and power. We, uh, all of us, listen to this and go, this is a big deal. But as well as whispering us to us of God's uh, potency, it has something else that I wanted to bring this morning. If you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 17. Um, I'm going to read from the message, so don't feel too guilty if you haven't bought uh, the message version. Because um, it says this in uh, Luke chapter 17. <clears throat> it happened that as Jesus made his way towards Jerusalem, he crossed over the border between Samaria and Galilee. It's a bit like going between uh, Broadfield and Bewbush. I don't know if you experienced the rivalry between the two places. It used to be a little bit more pronounced. Uh, but the rivalry between Samaria and Galilee was pronounced and uh, Jesus crosses between. And Samarians were not well regarded. The Samaritans are not well regarded. Um, so this is Luke chapter 17. And as Jesus entered a village, ten men, all lepers, met him. They kept their distance because they were unclean and they didn't want to uh, infect anyone else, either religiously or, or physically. And so they kept their distance and they raised their voices. These lepers, these 
sorry examples of humanity with perhaps lost limbs and diseased skin. They raised their voices and just called out this. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. No complicated prayer, no elaborate incantation. They just said, have mercy on us. Jesus, you know what we need. It is very apparent. We don't need to tell you what we need. You can see it with your own eyes. Have mercy on us. And it says this in the message, taking a good look at them. Jesus saw them and he saw their sorry state. And then he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And the miracle hadn't happened yet, but they went. And while they were on their way to see the priest, they became clean. And one of them, when he realised that he was healed, he turned round and came back. He didn't come back as a shy English person and sort of when Jesus had a quiet moment, just take his hand and go, thanks very much, Governor. <laughs> he shouted his gratitude. This meant that his whole life was changed. He could get back with his family. He could take his place in society. He could worship at the temple uh, again. And he was full of joy. And he shouted his gratitude. And just like my little Miles danced and skipped all the way to church this morning, this guy skipped and danced all the way to Jesus. And he was glorifying God. And he kneeled at Jesus' feet because he knows that Jesus is more than a good man. He is more than a moral teacher. He is more than uh, Barack Obama, who's just very clever. He kneeled at Jesus' feet because he was grateful. He couldn't thank him enough. And he was a Samaritan. It's like saying uh, if you lived in um, sort of Furnace Green, and he was from Bewbush. Like, oh, wow, that's, uh, he really wasn't someone that you would expect such godliness and such, uh, uh, um, such clarity of thought from. And Jesus said, we're not ten healed, where are the nine? Can none be found to come back and give glory to God except this outsider? Then he said to him, get up on your way. Your faith is healed and saved you. Now, we can only imagine the, uh, oh, just that awesome loss of weight on this guy's shoulders. He has been healed. All that skin disease um, and the uh, leprosy term in the Bible can cover a whole lot of different things. Suddenly, all that's gone. Suddenly, he can take his place in society. Suddenly, he come along to uh, sort of uh, meetings in the synagogue. Suddenly, he can enjoy his faith again. Suddenly, he can uh, uh, um, enjoy the company of people uh, uh, without leprosy. Nine of them, nine of these people that this miracle happened to, missed the larger point. I wonder whether you would have missed the larger point. I wonder how many of you something good happens to, something perhaps a little extraordinary, something that you didn't expect. Something good happens and you think, oh, I deserve that. Oh, it's a break. You know, I, I, I earned that. Or, um, well, I've done my religious duty to get that. You know what? 
God has done something and perhaps I've, oh, I've prayed out loud at church or, oh, I've given a bit of money or I've read my Bible a few times. That somehow you feel this transaction. Either God, uh, you had it coming to you or that God gave you a blessing and you gave it back. And if that is your response when God does something for you, blesses you in every way, you are completely missed the point. You're the nine lepers that haven't got a clue what is going on. The tenth enjoys the grace and his heart overflows with gratitude and worship. Doesn't think of plus and minus columns, doesn't think of credit and debit columns, doesn't think, oh, I've earned it, doesn't think, well, I've done my religious duty in response. He just goes, thanks, Jesus, you're awesome. Let me worship you. That's it. There's a simplicity here that would, uh, um, that would inspire us to have faith like children. Rather than get worked up as, well, have I done enough of that, perhaps, um, because I did this, this is why Jesus did this. There's just this overwhelming thanks in the heart. The point is, whether we live on the Nile and enjoy the, uh, the bounty that comes from living in a place that is good for crops or enjoy the occasional miracle, um, miraculous intervention, every single one of us, the good things are on our lives are only measures of grace. You haven't earned them. You haven't warranted them. God hasn't said, Rachel and Bianca and Ruth, you know what, you are level seven of spirituality, so I'm going to give you this blessing, but you are not going to get this. Or Barry and Alistair and Kev, well, you've reached level uh, seven, and um, I'm going to give you riches, but you haven't earned something else. Every good gift in our lives is a gift. Every good thing, every blessing is the generosity of God. We exhibit confusion, ignorance and rebellion if we don't come to God in thanks. When something good happens, don't think, well, it's not quite what I asked for, or, uh, well, I've earned that, you know, I've just worked so hard and finally I've been recognised. Everything is a gift. We have to live in this perpetual understanding that every good thing, every blessing is a blessing. The Nile turning to blood in this story should be a happy hint that we can't take anything for granted, that somehow we aren't all really uh, people that have earned God's favour at every step. Everything that God gives us is a blessing and an exhibition of his generosity. And so this is how Christians live. This is how your mindset is to be. This is how our mindset should be uh, Monday through for Sunday. We explicitly express thanks continually on an ongoing basis. We Christians should be the most thankful people on earth because we know that we have a gracious God and anything good in our lives is from him and so 
We say grace at meals. Now the tailors don't say grace at every meal. I'm not sure why, but breakfast just gets a pass. We all just pile in and eat our cocoa pops. I don't understand it, why we don't bother doing that. But it tends to be if we eat lunch or dinner together, and there'll be a little fight between the kids as to who will say grace. And then it is speed grace. I'm not sure it's because they're hungry or that's just how fast their mind works. But grace comes in and if you blink, you miss it. But grace is said because we are thankful for our food. And we pray in between when something good happens, we are thankful. Um, during the week, I was struggling with the idea of dying, with the, of dying for my faith. I don't know whether that's something you often think of, uh, uh, but martyrdom was on my mind. And I was like, I've got a lot of good things. I'm not sure I'm ready to die, Lord, for you quite yet. Could we uh, uh, delay that a little bit? And then I was running uh, through the forests uh, this morning and I was like, you know what, you're awesome, God, and I actually am ready and um, I'm sure Sam and the kids wouldn't be up for my martyrdom but I am ready to die for you because you are awesome and you hold my higher allegiance more than anything else. It is good to nurture a thankful heart. It is good to give stuff away, to go, you know what, God has given me so much stuff, let me uh, uh, furnish other people with blessings. Let us maintain cheerful hearts. It is not easy to always do this. My heart is not a mirror of Jesus's. My heart is often more like the nine lepers who thought they'd earned their healing or had at least God given back, given God back his dues. But this is why we have Sunday mornings, to remind us of how we need to act, how we need to discipline ourselves, how we need to train our minds. And this morning we are uh, being invited to be thankful, to be thankful this Sunday morning. It's a little easy when the weather's dry and the sun is bright and we've made to make it to church. But the invitation is be cheerful, be thankful. If we struggle to count God's provision, if everything seems to have gone wrong, then we have the supreme thing of Jesus' life, death and resurrection to be thankful. Even if you're a leper, and looking around I can't see any amongst us, so you've all got that to be thankful for, even if we're a leper on the outskirts of society having to pitch our tent in Buckham Park because we can't be around civilization, uh, we have the reason to be thankful because Jesus died for us and has given us an eternal inheritance. This life may not be that great. This life may not uh, have as many blessings as we would like. But nevertheless, every single person in this room and beyond who confesses Jesus as Lord and Saviour has a reason to be thankful. Even when the rain is coming down, our bank accounts are empty and we've got a rather annoying rash that we're too ashamed to go to the doctor for, we can be thankful in our hearts. Each of us carry pains and tragedies, it's true, but they pass. And worst case scenario, they pass when you die and then you enter uh, uh, the heavenly gates. So we can be thankful. And some of you, when you listen to the sermon, need to tell your face that you're grateful. As 
blood, stinking, nasty, horrible, putrid, decaying blood inhabits the Nile and the drinking vessels and everything else. Pharaoh is not put out. He is unfazed. It's quite remarkable. This guy who's in charge of this empire sees his entire empire laid waste with blood coming up from everywhere. That would freak me out. I would be ready to give the Israelites whatever they want, but not Pharaoh. And so what he gets is his sorcerers and demonic priests and whatever else he's got step forward. Um, and you can imagine them looking pretty grim and horrible, and they step forward, and you're like, what are they going to do? Now, I, consider this. Moses and Aaron have confronted you, confronted you and turned your entire empire into some sort of blood vessel. It is nasty and horrible. You've got nothing to drink, no fish to catch, nothing to take your waste away. What would you like your magicians and sorcerers and priests to do? What would you ask them to do? Surely the greatest thing would be to clear all this blood away, to get rid of it. Surely this would be the sign these magicians are bigger and better than God. But Pharaoh's guys, they just do the same again. They only copy what God had already accomplished. It is a lesson that alternatives to God can, even at their peak moment, only mimic what he can do. And at worst, they're impotent and can't achieve anything. So these Egyptian idol worshippers... They make matters worse by making more water turn into blood. Can you get your head around that? These magicians come forward go, we're not frightened of your God, and then just do more of the curse in Egypt. And these guys puff themselves up and think, yeah, you see God? See Yahweh, you're not all that, we can do that too. And if I was there, I'd be like, but you've made it worse. Why do you think you're yeah, all that if you've made things go from bad to worse? And then look at the situation. I really like this. Um, who's changed their minds in this scenario? There's great drama, lots of uh, uh, capacity for theatre and stuff. Moses and Aaron still believe. The Israelites aren't mentioned at all. Pharaoh's still got his hard heart and the magicians think they're all that. What's the point of the whole episode? It all seems a bit of a charade. It's a bit like drama school. It doesn't really matter. Why bother with all of this? Why not skip all these little signs and wonders? Because we know, don't we? Hopefully all of us have already read this account in Exodus. We know that it's only the last one that really changes things. Why on earth bother with all these other signs and wonders when no one changes their mind? I want to read to you uh, something from uh, one of my uh, books in my study. It says this.
Who then is left? For whose faith has the mighty act been put together? And to whom are these narratives directed? Who are these stories for? There can be but a single answer to these questions, an answer that stands forth more clearly with each successive narrative of the ten. We need to keep this in mind for all of the signs that are to come. The mighty act accounts are written from faith to faith. They were compiled that the generations of Israel might come to know that Yahweh is, and so know also the redemption of Exodus, whatever their bondage. This story was written for you. The Nile was turned into blood for your sake. Made no difference to Moses and Aaron, made no difference to the Israelites, made no difference to Pharaoh, made no difference to the magicians. This story was recorded for your sake. What are you going to do with it? It's been preserved for uh, millennia. What are you going to do with this story? We look back, don't we, at the through the few thousand years and we see a very different landscape. You know, we've got our iPhones and e-bikes and uh, convenience stores and it seems quite a foreign culture in some ways. But if you listen to the themes, they should be very familiar to you. If we trust in our Saviour, our deliverance is both guaranteed and a process. We are saved when we confess Jesus is Lord and it is an ongoing process as well. Jesus doesn't look at you and go, you're a great finished project, uh, great finished product, you are already attained the heights of holiness. No. Jesus looks at you and go, you know what? You all need to have some edges knocked off you. You all need to be purified. You all need to be better at being loving, at being thankful, at enjoying the Holy Spirit, at participating in this faith. And so we have this uh, 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 idea that your faith is both achieved and an ongoing process. Jesus' broken body and his shed blood mean that we are safer than we can ever imagine. Do you really think you can outsin the grace of God? Do you really think you can do something so bad that you can overcome the blood of the Lamb? Let me tell you the answer is no. I don't know what you've done this week. Some of you may have been right terrors, right uh, um, uh, naughty people. But Jesus' blood overcomes it. Whatever you've done, you can all sit here having indulged in booze and fags and adultery and corruption and sort of fiddled your expenses and done whatever you want. And you can sit in this room with a sense of serenity because Jesus died for you and his blood covers that. You are okay. Can I have a hallelujah? Hallelujah. Excellent. However, as we live our lives waiting for Jesus to return, we deal with a few struggles, don't we? I realise I'm saying it's good to be thankful and it's a a discipline to work on the house. 
But how easy it is to be unthankful. How easy is it to come dragging your feet to church? How easy is it to go, yeah, I'm not going to go to that meeting. I just can't be bothered. What has God even ever done for me? How easy it is to go, you know, I'm not going to open my Bible. I'm not going to bother praying. I'm going to avoid Christians because they make me feel guilty. How easy is it to uh, sense the struggles and allow them to win out. Don't we question God? I'm a pastor and this week I've questioned God in innumerable different ways. Wondered if he existed, wonder what sort of God he was because things haven't always gone my way or how I imagined his way would be. We have people around us that doubt and scoff and say stuff that seems destructive and God's enemies they revel in their scepticism. Me and the kids uh, uh, were in uh, a bookshop uh, yesterday and we were trying to get them uh, interesting books to get them to read because you all know that uh, um, uh, screens are far more engaging than books, don't you? How easy is it to spend an hour watching Netflix rather than an hour uh, reading the Bible or, or, or even reading? So we're in the... Uh, um, we're in a bookshop, and I went to the, uh, uh, my kids found the religious section, and they go, Dad, Dad, this is your bit. And I was like, okay, we'll have a look at my bit. And I'm, I'm always rather appalled at the religious section, because you have a few sort of old Catholic books about saints, and then some spurious latest paperback about sort of how to get your life together. Um, and uh, sure enough, I was disappointed again yesterday and we went there and sure, was it Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and their scoffing and their scepticism and their atheism seeped out and seemed to sort of uh, uh, drain the colours from all the other books and again I winced and moaned and you wonder what sort of God have we got? Is he even doing anything? Is he worth our time what on earth are we doing? Why don't we just occupy ourselves with trivialities like the rest of humanity? No one bothers talking about religion because it's all been disproved, hasn't it? Let's just get on with acquiring stuff and stimulating our brains in ways that we would like. Don't these all frustrate God? Has he just given up? Can we exhaust his power and faithfulness is my doubting the final nail in his coffin? And this story, this story of blood in the Nile says, it's nothing new. People turning their back on God is nothing new. People doubting God is nothing new. People scoffing at him and thinking they're just as good as him. It's nothing new. It's all been done before. And it doesn't frustrate him. It doesn't stop him. It doesn't somehow put a roadblock on the passage of salvation. God is loving, faithful and strong and he will achieve and accomplish his purposes uh, whether you turn your back like Pharaoh or whether you join in like Moses and Aaron. He will accomplish his purposes and uh, we should derive, if we love him, a little bit of pleasure from that. We should be able to breathe out and go, oh, you mean my doubting on Tuesday when everything seemed to be going wrong? That didn't come out, kind of take the rug under God's feet? No. He could cope with the Pharaoh turning his back. He could cope with Israelites again and again doubting him at all. He can cope with whatever you come up with 
or what anybody else comes up with. And he's still going to bring about this perfect, peaceful, loving plan for your lives. I want to close with a reading from um, John. I haven't written this down, but I'm going to dare to read the message because I quite like the message translation. Um, we kind of think sometimes that Thomas is like the um, anti-Christian, you know, like whatever you want to be, don't be like Thomas, okay? But Thomas is an invitation that nothing confounds or confuses or gets under God's skin. I really hope this works out. Here we go. It says this in John chapter 20. Let me tell you, Thomas is an encouragement to us all. But Thomas, sometimes called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came and the other disciples told him, we saw the master. But he said, unless I see the, nails in his the nail holes in his hands and put my finger in the nail holes, Tom is a good doubter. He's not just a spurious in the air one. He wants to see the physical evidence and give it a prod with his own hands. This is a guy who has... Uh, He's not just sceptical because he hates God. He's sceptical because he wants to see it with his hands and eyes. I won't believe it until I do these things, he says. Eight days later, so eight days, Thomas was doubting and confused and probably emotionally disturbed because all his other mates were believing in Jesus as risen from the dead. And he was like, oh, I'm not sure and I really need to see some evidence. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the room. This time, Thomas was with them. Jesus came through the locked door, stood among them and said, Peace be to you. Then, this is how loving a God is. doesn't go over to Thomas and kick him in the shins and go, flipping doubter. What are you doing? Don't, don't you read the scriptures? Don't you know your Old Testament? Sometimes we think God does that to us, don't you? But Jesus... He focused his attention on Thomas, this guy that doubted, the one who put his, one who put his hands in the wounds. Take your finger and examine my hands. It was Thomas's prayer. That's what Thomas really wanted in the depths of it. He goes, just give me evidence, God. And Jesus comes up to him, focuses amongst all the other disciples, looks on Thomas and goes, do it. Do what you dreamed of. This is the answer to your prayer, right here and now. Take your finger and examine my hands. Take your hand and stick it in my sand. Why? Not to prove him wrong, not to take Thomas down a step. I don't want you to be unbelieving, Thomas. Friend, don't want you to be unbelieving. Believe. It's the greatest joy you'll ever know. It's the most permanent thing for the rest of your life. Believe, Thomas. And Thomas didn't jab, or there's no record of him jabbing Jesus in the wounds. I think he knew a physical Jesus when he saw one. And he says, my master, my God. And if you ever speak to a Jehovah's Witness, use that verse. It's a good one. Because it's a clear indication that Jesus is God incarnate. And Jesus said, so you believe because you've seen with your own eyes. And he says, that's okay. That's what I came here for. That's what the bit in the room where he takes Thomas aside and selects him out of all the other disciples so he could believe. But it says this, and this is the rest of us. 
even better blessings are in store for those who believe without seeing. Put your hands up if you've prodded the wounds of Jesus physically in this lifetime. No, no. So all of us are included in this blessing. Each of us, if we haven't prodded Jesus' wounds with our fingers, that blessing is for us. Jesus says, it's really nice that you can believe without me having to turn up physically in your uh, uh, downstairs hall and uh, show you my wounds that you believe, that you've trusted the text, that you've seen other Christians, that you've seen the effect it has in your eyes. There's some blessings there. Yes, it's hard, but there are blessings there. God is chuffed that you believe him. God is chuffed that you've taken him at his word. And he says, so cheer up. Tell your face to smile, because there's stuff to be smiling about. Jesus provided far more God-revealing signs than are written down in this book. I love this. Though these are written down so you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so that he won't have to turn up in your downstairs hall and prod his wounds. You go, I've just written a book, it's easier. Please don't go that, down that line where you have to put your hands in his side. Just take John's word for it. So they're written down so that you will believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And in the act of believing, have real and eternal life in the way he personally revealed it. Amen. Please bow your heads. God, <laughs> this wonder of the Nile turning to blood is gruesome and grotesque. And it didn't achieve anything amongst those people there. But Lord God... It changes our hearts. Help us to be grateful, ever grateful, for the spiritual blessings that you give us and all the other ones as well, like shelter and food and family and church and each other. And Lord God, I pray also that we would have this larger understanding of who you are, that you accommodate yourselves to each and every one of us, that uh, this story was written to remind us that things can go really wrong even when you've done an amazing thing and it doesn't faze you and you're not upset by it and it's all part of your perfect plan. Lord God, I pray that we would have the peace that comes from knowing a God that is in control whose salvation of us is secure and eternal. And Lord God, I pray for those of us that are doubting, that are confused, that are somehow not quite there. May we know that personal attention where Jesus just comes up to us and goes, believe, because it is the greatest blessing that we can know. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen. amen.